0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of our Topics in Drug Testing podcast. My name is Frank Samarro. I'm the Director of Marketing for the Clinical Drug Monitoring Franchise here at Quest. Today's episode is titled, Limitations of Point-of-Care Drug Testing. I think you're going to get a lot out of the discussion, which features, as always, our very own Dr. Jeff Gooden and Dr. Jack Kane. Dr. Gooden and Dr. Kane. Great to have you with us today. I'll turn it over to you for quick introductions and to get the discussion started. Thanks, Frank. This is Dr. Jeff Gooden,
1: anesthesiologist, pain management specialist, and consultant to the Quest Toxicology franchise. Thanks for joining us again. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Dr. Jack Kane. Jack, quick intro. Hey, thank you, Dr.
2: Gooden. Good to be here, Director, Medical Science Liaison for Quest Drug Monitoring and Toxicology.
1: Thanks, Jack. So, uh, we done a lot of podcasts together. And I think in the past before that we've talked about the difference between presumptive versus definitive testing. But today I really want to focus on a kind of an important point, like the limitations of point of care testing. So many doctor's offices have patients give a sample right on site. They use a little kind of cup or dipstick to, to have rapid results. But I'm never quite sure if the results of those point-of-care tests are as useful as when you actually send the sample to the lab. So let's start out with the basics for those who might be new to us. Tell us a little bit about what is drug testing.
0: Yeah, thanks.
2: This is a very important topic, Dr. Gooden. I mean, you know, in my career in in laboratory drug testing toxicology. you see providers change hands, staff turnover, clinician turnover. But one thing that doesn't really change are, is the limitations of uh, of point of care testing, which falls under the umbrella of presumptive testing, which is includes antibody technologies to identify drug exposure, drug use, or drug exposure. So, you know what is drug testing? Well, drug testing uses a biological sample such as urine, saliva, sweat, hair, blood. Um, to detect the presence or absence of a specific drug or drugs, as well as drug metabolites within a specific window of, of time. And we actually have a podcast episode elaborating on that too, as you know, windows of detection. So check that
1: out. Of course. And, and Jack, you know what, just thinking out loud, like in the hospital, I see the... You know, maybe the ambulance drivers and the workers come in for employment testing. I don't think any of those tests are point of care. Aren't those? Isn't that like an important enough specimen that has to get sent to a lab?
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: So we see drug testing in a number of settings, not just you know, like we do drug monitoring, looking for uh, you know, prescription medicines and illicit drugs, even things like employment drug testing. And and you know, it's critical to get the results right. Um, Mm -hmm. It helps. it, It helps us as clinicians guide our pharmacological plan. It complements the patient's self-report. And look, let's face it, you and I have talked a lot. We have the prescription drug monitoring database. Every state has it now. But there's limitations there. That just tells you what the patient picked up at the pharmacy.
2: Right. So, you know, with reference lab technology, it gives you more granularity, more specificity on what substance the patient has actually been exposed to and or consumed. Whereas some of the limitations of these point of care tests tell you what might be there. Just because it's a positive doesn't mean necessarily it's a true positive or it doesn't mean it's the substance of interest. So these are the limitations and it's, it's important for clinicians to always be reminded of the limitations of these technologies before they start making decisions based off of a drug test result, which has the patient provider trust on the line many times.
1: That's so important, Jack. You know, I always tell my colleagues that they need to have at least a basic understanding of drug testing and interpretation of the results. You know, you mentioned something interesting, all these different what we call matrices, you know, urine, saliva, sweat, hair. What's the most common one we use and and why?
2: Yeah, urine is, you know, the most common specimen for drug testing due to many reasons, but, you know, it's non-invasive and it's a relatively easy sample to collect, you know, when you compare it to blood, hair, saliva, sweat, nails, you know, it's it's pretty universal and captures many patients without, you know, discriminating or, you know, having any bias.
1: Hey, Jack, is it true that substances hang around in the urine longer than they hang around, let's say, like in the blood or the saliva?
2: Yeah, so generally speaking, you know, drugs in, in urine have like around a three-day window of detection. There's exceptions
1: to the rule, you
2: know, we could get into that, but that's also in our Windows of Detection podcast. Um, but yeah, you know, longer window of detection than blood is generally around one to two days. Oral fluid, one to two days. Some exceptions to that as well. It, it provides an added window of detection. Urine specimens do, and that is why it's a very favorable specimen. It's one of the reasons why.
1: You know, I've always said hair testing seems so cool, but having been to a bunch of payer meetings, you know, they're just they they haven't really accepted it as as a reasonable matrix. And then the other thing is the science is not really there. It doesn't work the same for people with red or purple hair as it does for people with blonde hair. And then mm-hmm. when you you know, some of the misusers will shave their hair so you don't have hair samples to take. But but I always said, look, you know, the longer window of detection I can have into knowing what kind of drugs a patient has taken, the better off we would be. So yeah. in the pain management world, really, I don't know how we would do without drug testing. It certainly helps us detect misuse, abuse or, or diversion of, of prescription drugs, helps us detect illicit substances. It helps us look at drug combining. We've seen that before, Jack. Remember that statistic that one in five samples that came into Quest one year had an unprescribed opioid or benzo. One in five. Yep. I mean, it was just amazing. So we really need drug testing to help maintain safe access to, to prescription medicines. Hey, Jack, tell us about some of the guidelines that might support drug testing.
2: Yeah, various guidelines support drug testing. The CDC you know, issued new clinical practice guidelines for prescribing opioids for pain in November 2022. And just a reminder, you know, um, some of the key points from the guidelines include, you know, before starting opioids, and periodically, at least annually during opioid therapy, clinicians should consider the benefits and risks of toxicology testing to assess for prescribed medications, as well as other prescribed and non-prescribed controlled substances. So we can't forget other controlled substances for a reason.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the CDC guidelines, I think, are really going to be a big help uh, to clinicians when it comes to prescribing controlled substances. And And they changed from the 2016 original guidelines. These updated guidelines last year said, okay, listen, there can't be any bias in medicine. If you're going to test one, you have to test all. You can't stereotype patients and just cause, you know, the guy comes in with a, you know, a Harley jacket and tattoos. And you can't say, oh, I'm going to drug test you more frequently than I'm going to test my Aunt Mary patients. You know what I mean? Everybody's got to be t- tested equally. And then if you get some unexpected results, don't just throw the patient out of your practice. Have an open dialogue with their patient, send a confirmatory test, another sample, figure out what's going on there. I find a, you know, there's a point of confusion. Patients don't always know what they're supposed to take or not supposed to take. They don't recognize that alcohol could be really dangerous with their sedatives or their opioids. So when you get a drug test that doesn't look the way you want it to, you know, certainly talk to patients about it and figure out the real reason or meaning behind the results. Now, Jack, let's get to the topic at hand today. The CDC even addresses this in their guidelines, talking about presumptive versus definitive. And when it comes to presumptive testing, point of care versus laboratory testing. Give us a quick idea of the difference between those things.
2: One idea is like you just mentioned it earlier, which was mentioned in the, the CDC guidelines. You know, if unexpected results from toxicology screening are not explained, a confirmatory test on the same sample might be necessary. So, you know, that's just talking about limitations uh, in even a point of care test. It's like you can get unexpected negatives and you can make an incorrect assumption based off those results when if you set for a definitive test, you would see that there's actually some drug in that patient. So, you know, that's just one example of a limitation of even a point of care test.
1: Yeah. So, Jack, I mean, we don't expect the primary care docs out there and the nurse practitioners and physicians assistants and even some of the pain doctors to understand the nuances of of drug testing. What I will tell you, if you remember a couple of years back, we did that, that Harris poll survey. We asked 500 prescribers, primary care docs mostly, to tell us their thoughts behind drug testing. Mm-hmm. And 61% said that Definitive drug testing is worth it at any cost because they understood the limitations of presumptive testing. 55% agreed that presumptive tests miss a lot of misuse that definitive drug tests could identify. And 86% saw definitive drug testing as essential to being able to care for their patients prescribed controlled substances. So there's a value here to clinicians. We recognize that you could buy a three, four, $5 cup Just to say that you're doing some testing, but don't fool yourself. You're missing a lot of true positive results if and when you do those tests versus sending them, uh, sending them to the lab. So, Jack, I don't want to just you know speak from the hip. Is definitive testing more sensitive and more specific?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, it provides that level of granularity that you need to identify some of these drugs. Some of these drugs share the same. Not only are they in the same class, but they actually share the same byproducts that could trigger a positive on a point of care test. So you need to know what other byproducts are present to, uh, to correlate it to a specific drug. So it's like benzodiazepines. You know, is this temazepam from Valium? Is this oxazepam from a- another benzodiazepine? Is it from just in and of itself being consumed as a prescription benzodiazepine? It's like definitive drug testing. Can I identify where these other su- where these substances um, might actually be coming from, and um, does it correlate to what's prescribed? So, um, when when you, you you can't really get that very often with uh, these point of care tests because you know even a uh, doctor gooden you've looked at a point of care test result and it says opiates positive. What does that mean? Well, yeah, there's something probably within the same drug class that's triggering that positive. So, is it codeine? Is it morphine? Is it codeine plus morphine and hydrocodone? Which one is it? You know, is it all three of them? So, you know, it it could tell you like, yeah, your patient's been exposed to opiates. Is it in a compliant manner or is it from incidental exposure such as poppy seeds? A definitive test done at a reference laboratory can help paint that picture.
1: Yeah, Jack, I'll tell you. In my last practice, we were very heavy on point of care cups. And it took me a while to realize, you know, I can't screen for gabapentin or pregabalin, which are also drugs of abuse. Uh, I can't screen for fentanyl. And we'll talk about now some of the cups that do have fentanyl. I'm going to ask you in just a second about about how accurate those cups are. We know that definitive testing takes a little bit longer to come back from a lab. is a bit more expensive. But the way I, I, I kind of give an analogy, it's like doing an x-ray versus an MRI for low back pain. Sure, you could say you did radiographic uh, imaging, but an x-ray isn't going to tell you a whole lot. You really want the granularity. You want it to be crystal clear about what the Mm -hmm. findings are underneath. We know that if you're going to do point-of-care testing from your office, you should have a CLIA waiver to do some of these waived drug tests. You can apply for that through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services through CMS. The FDA determines complexity for lab tests. And the way a lab test gets waived for you to be able to do it in the office is that they look at the test and they decide that it's simple enough to perform. There's a low risk of getting erroneous errors and that you're okay to do it in the office without having to send it to a a toxicology lab, have it reviewed by a toxicologist, performed on a complex analyzer. But those are the choices we have to make. So Jack, I just want to go back for just a second you mentioned cross-reactivity give me an example of some drugs that might cross-react and give us false positive results on a drug test
2: the reason why these occur it's like oftentimes two substances with similar chemical structures um, can can trigger a a positive for a particular drug class on a point of care device so that antibody technology can't differentiate between two substances that look chemically and function probably chemically similar but not doesn't always have to do with function but they are chemically structurally similar, and that antibody technology just cannot differentiate between the two. So, like one common example is like an antidepressant called bupropion. If you look at the chemical structure of bupropion, it actually looks like an amphetamine. It's a stimulant, and you know it could actually trigger a quote presumptive positive on amphetamines. A patients not prescribed Adderall or using an illicit drug, but they're taking bupropion, and you only relied on a point of care test. And it says amphetamines positive think about the accusations you could make without actually just sending it for confirmation just to make sure like look you're negative for you know crystal meth you're negative for adderall A definitive test showed that so um, you can have the appropriate dialogue with the patient without being overly accusatory <laughs>
1: Sure. Yeah. Listen, false positive results are one great reason to think about definitive testing that's that's done at a lab. You know, the other thing, Jack, I mention to patients all the time, they say they're taking their drug, but it doesn't come back positive. I talk about thresholds or cutoffs. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: The cutoff is a threshold at or above which a result is considered positive or below which a result is considered negative. It's that positive negative threshold. And it, you know that core, we kind of use these terms interchangeably with sensitivity, sensitivity, you know, and laboratory testings. Like essentially, how low can you go? How low are you reporting? And how low can you do that reliably? A lot of these point of care tests, unfortunately, don't have high sensitivity, meaning they can't detect drugs reliably at low levels, and and that's a problem because some drugs are dosed at low levels, whether they're misused at, at low levels or just dosed in terms of pharmaceutical prescribing at, at low levels, a lot of these point-of-care tests can miss actual positives. And then when we saw we saw something like this occurring with fentanyl, it's like fentanyl, a lot of these point-of-care testing devices, they're not very sensitive in detection of fentanyl. And we reviewed one commonly used one where the cutoff was was really high we found that you could miss up to 74% of actual positive results just using this point of care test. So you want to talk about creating a false sense of security for your clinicians and for the patient? It's like, you know, you're missing a lot of actual positives. So
1: let me get this right. If you're a clinician out there and you're buying these, you know, inexpensive dipsticks or point of cares, the ones you guys looked at, I understand a common cup missed 74% of fentanyl positivity. In other words, had they sent it to the lab, it would have been a true positive, but because they didn't send it to the lab, they got a false negative, right? The test was negative when it really should have been positive. Correct. That's amazing. And I assume that happens for other drugs too, not just fentanyl.
2: Absolutely. Methamphetamine, it could happen up to 16%. You know, no point of care device is created equal. It's just important to for clinicians to understand that these limitations can occur and it's kind of what we spoke to earlier, unexpected negatives can occur. And if providers suspect drug use still or want that more, the higher sensitivity, send to a reference lab for a definitive test so that clinicians can have the best possible data before they make these determinations.
1: Well, these are some really important concepts about drug testing, cross-reactivity, false positives your cup not being sensitive enough. So you get a false negative when there's really drug there, but the cup isn't good enough to pick it up. This is great, Jack. So overall, let's just summarize for our listeners out there. Why is it just from a 30,000 foot view, we drug test? And why is it that we should consider laboratory-based testing over point of care devices? I mean, drug testing is
2: a very important tool, just in even in medication management, just managing prescription drug use. Is the patient positive for prescribed drugs of interest? If it's a controlled substance, especially, and they're negative for it and they're dosed daily on it, what is the patient doing with that medication? You know, that's the objective information that a drug test can provide and a definitive drug test especially can provide. Yeah, it's just one part, one one tool to help expand the clinical picture of the patient. And it's a very valuable tool in managing patients with it, especially with a history of substance use disorder.
1: I'll remind our practitioners out there that there are a number of things that you should be doing in practice to screen for substance use disorder or any inappropriate use of prescription or illicit drugs. There are questionnaires out there. We've reviewed some of these on previous calls, like the opioid risk tool, the SOAP tool, the drug abuse screening test, uh, SISAP. There are a number of questionnaires out there. But if you're not going to use some validated tool, at least ask your patients, hey, any problems with drug or alcohol abuse in the past? Any family history of drug or alcohol abuse? How about mental health disorders, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder? Those are the really big PTSD, the really big risk factors for misuse of prescription drugs and use of illicit drugs. Drug testing in clinical practice helps us analyze a patient's adherence to the plan, it helps us intervene early if there is a problem. And I tell you, I do a fair amount of consulting and, and medical legal work. It meets the expectations of medical boards and regulatory agencies. And when, when the patient's drug tests come back as expected, it helps us advocate for patients to get medicines on a continual basis, medicines that they need. And most importantly, it helps protect you and your practice. Jack, tell us a little bit about Quest's offerings quest the best practices we find include a blend of
2: presumptive testing with definitive testing so it's like yeah you get that positive on a point of care test you know send for confirmation to to see is this patient actually taking what they're prescribed is this positivity from cross reactivity of another unknown substance just send for confirmation to get an idea of what's really going on with your patient and having the best data before you have some of those tough conversations with the patient. You know, what does that mean? Like, yeah, positive on a point-of-care test, send for confirmation to Quest. But also the unexpected negatives, which we talked about, too. Uh, we see providers get negatives for clonopin, clonazepam on benzodiazepine screens all the time on their point-of-care testing devices, and oftentimes clinicians don't even know that that point of care device really isn't good at detecting, if at all, that particular benzodiazepine. And so, you know, they might make an accusation that their patient is non-compliant to their benzodiazepine, but if you send for confirmation, you see some levels there.
1: That's really another great example of why using laboratory-based testing helps really confirm or refute the results of, of point of care. You know, the thing that that I found helpful about Quest is this kind of paradigm of only doing the minimally necessary testing. Let's do presumptive and only send for definitive those things that are relevant. The costs seem to be reasonable, and I know there's that RxTox line that Quest has where you can call in and ask questions about, hey, which test should I order? I got these drug results. How do I interpret them? And the other thing about Quest, similar to what we mentioned for CDC, they're committed to reducing healthcare disparities. They have a Quest for Health Equity initiative, and it really focuses on social determinants of health. So they want to provide equitable care to everyone, no matter where they are, what their condition is, or their abilities to pay. So, Jack, this was great, another great discussion about point-of-care testing, how it stands up to laboratory-based testing, and the importance of cutoffs, thresholds, false positives, and false negatives. Thank you for your time. Jack, thanks so much as usual, and please stay tuned for our next edition of a Quest podcast. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Gooden. Thanks, Dr. Kane. That was a great discussion on the limitations of point-of-care testing. Just a few notes for me to wrap up. To learn more about Quest Diagnostics Drug Monitoring Offering, please visit questdrugmonitoring.com, our website. Here you'll find information on our drug monitoring test directory, our offerings, as well as some additional educational resources and insights from our team of toxicology experts. To listen to this and all of our other podcasts on drug testing, be sure to visit questdrugtesting.com or subscribe through your favorite podcast venue at quest. We're committed to providing you results and insight to support your clinical decisions.